Hello and welcome to the Cowboy Jesus Podcast. It is great to come to you today. We're riding the rodeo of religion and life. I'm Steve Poos Benson. I'm the host of the podcast. It's always great to be with you to explore the different frontiers of spirituality, new thoughts, and ideas. Today, I have a special guest with me. His name is Reverend Dr. Russ Kane. Russ is a colleague of mine, but I'd like to say he's more than a colleague. Russ is a good friend of mine. He has been the recent pastor at New Hope Presbyterian Church in Castle Rock. But Russ has just retired from ministry this past summer, and I wanted to grab a hold of him and have the opportunity to interview him for the podcast because Russ has been uh, my mentor. He has been a mentor to so many different people here in the Denver Presbytery and literally across the PCUSA in general that Russ has touched a lot of people. And so I wanted to have him come in here to talk with us about some of his thoughts and feelings and recollections about life and ministry and leadership and the future, retirement, and on and on and on. So Russ, it's great to have you here. It's good to be here, Steve. I'm really glad to be here. So tell me, tell everybody a little bit about who is Russ Kane. So uh, probably the best thing, place to start for me uh, in, in regards to this, I grew up in Southern California. Um, Where? At, in uh, a little town called Bellflower. It's uh, Bellflower. I, I know. Grew up in it, San it, Diego. I've never it, heard of Bellflower. Well, the, no, most people haven't. It, <laughs> it's it's a town of about a hundred thousand, but in uh, L.A. terms, that that doesn't even make it on the map. No. Uh-uh. And so uh-huh. it's uh, kind of on the edge of Orange County, L.A. County. Uh-huh. Uh I grew up in uh, a little town, and uh, back then. The Presbyterian Church is where I grew up. So, I mean, I have deep roots in all this stuff. And, and sat in the balcony because our church had a balcony. And so that's <laughs> where all the, all the kids sat. <laughs> and uh, a lot of my, uh, my faith experience uh, was from a balcony uh, in the best and the worst sense of that word. In a Presbyterian church, did uh-huh. you say? So yeah. was it, uh, okay, so you grew up PCUSA. I, I grew up. I grew up uh, when the uh, Confession of 1967 was being introduced, and I still remember our minister preaching on it for over a year as it oh was it was rolling out. And I, you know, I'm in what third grade or something like that, and that was back in the days when you know it was good for kids to sit in church and listen to sermons and fall asleep, which is what I did most Sundays. Um, but th- that was part of my roots, and and uh, uh, and I grew up there. Uh, that's where I met my wife, by the way, was was in that town. We actually knew of each other since junior high. We actually oh had the same, gosh. I know, same oh home room. Gosh. We didn't know of each other more than just by name. We certainly never talked. Uh, it was in high school that we actually started to talk. We, we were forced into becoming lab partners in the same biology class. And um, out of that, uh, very different people. But at the end of that year, we started to date and uh, so this is like your sophomore year, did you just? Junior year. Junior when, year. Is when we actually started to actually oh talk <laughs> and, and know of each other. And it was, uh, you know, an oil and water kind of a thing. <laughs> did, did you go together through college? Yeah. Yeah. Through college. And we finished up in San Diego. Uh, she was a nursing student and went to San Diego State. I was in Long Beach State. And uh, we decided to get married, and we had one year left to go in college. And uh, psych majors is what I was. We're a dime a dozen. We can go anywhere. And you're nursing students. you gotta, you got to <laughs> hang out where you're supposed to. And so we moved down there and finished up down in San Diego. Um, I went to school down uh, in uh, Pasadena, Fuller Seminary. I went to Fuller. Is where I went. Um, and then my first church was in the San Fernando Valley. 
uh, Granada Hills. Uh, was there for about, gosh, about seven years. And it re I really did back into ministry. You know, some people, I, I love the people who say, oh, yeah, I know I wanted to be a minister since I was five. Uh -huh. like, oh, heavens. You right. know, I wanted right. to be a professional basketball player when <laughs> I was five. <laughs> Jerry West is who I wanted to oh, be. Jerry West, you just aged both of us. <laughs> uh, well, you know, and... Uh, you know, it became clear after a while that the world had enough five, ten point guards. <laughs> and so that probably wasn't going to happen. But then I'm, I started off as an engineering major, uh, which is really what I liked doing, uh, solving problems and doing that. About my third semester of calculus, I decided, eh, I don't <laughs> think I want to do that anymore. Uh, it was also the same year that I took this amazing class, uh, Intro to Psychology, and decided that's what I want to be. Um, I grew up, my dad was a basketball coach, and that's what I decided I wanted to be. And then uh, maybe go into counseling, high school counseling, that's kind of where I wanted uh -huh. to be. Um, little by little, um, I kind of found myself moving back to the church. I had kind of left the church, as a lot of kids do. Right. Um, and, and I really had an aversion to church. Um, I came back at one point to help teach a class, uh, a third or fourth grade Sunday school class, kind of liked it. They made me the sixth grade teacher uh, and then the junior high teacher. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> trial by, bat, by fire. And, um, and little by little, I kind of dug it. And so uh, at one point, I asked my minister, I said, how do you know if you're supposed to be a minister? And he said, well, if there's anything else you can do and still be happy, you ought to go do that. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. He says, but if you find that that's the only thing that really draws you out and that it's compelling and won't let go of you, then you've got your answer. And I thought, I'm off the hook. There's a lot of things I can do. Right. Um, but little by little, those doors kept opening and those things became more and more compelling. And even when I entered into seminary, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a uh -huh. minister. I just kind of dug the education. It's like, oh, right. I want to find out more. Right. My first church, I still wasn't sure I wanted to be a minister. Uh -huh. I know that, yeah, that sounds crazy, but it was like, okay, let's do this. I like, I like turning lights on, and I like, I like that interaction thing. Right. Uh, but the local church was still not, not a high on my, uh, my priority list. It was a large church. It was a programmatic church, and it just about killed me. Uh -huh. um, and then we moved up to the state of Washington, uh, central uh, Washington, the Yakima Valley, a little town called Sunnyside. And that's where I fell in love with the local church. Huh. It's like, I, I love God, love Jesus. How old were you? You know what? That's my second church, so I'm in my 30s. Uh -huh. And um, because there, it was like there was a part-time secretary and there was me. Wow. And so you got to, to work with kids being baptized. You got to teach. You got to preach. You got to work in communities. You got to do things in the community. Uh, do do funeral, uh, the whole gamut, and it was there that I really came to just fall in love with when you know, when there's nothing like the local church when it gets it right, and that's a church I got it right an awful lot, and um, and so that that kind of gave me my footing for continuing on with ministry, and um, always thought new church development was kind of fun. I kind of have a cool idea. Uh, there was a church that was needing a, a pastor, a fairly young church, uh, down in Castle Rock, Colorado at that point. And we came down here. It's not a new church, but it was newish, and it was, it was still pretty young and had a lot of those aspects. And so that's where we were for 26-plus years. So here's how far back I go. So when I was here, I came here to the Denver Presbyterian when I was 25. 
And I remember when there was <laughs> the right. Presbyterian Church in Sedalia. Yeah. And they, at the time, there was a guy who was a crazy, he was crazy as a minister. I, I won't go into how crazy he was, but he was BS crazy. And But he had the idea of selling that property in Sedalia and buying a piece of property in Castle Rock. Yep. And it was his vision and brainstorm yep. that made that thing happen. It did. And it was back when Castle Rock, there was nothing, no subdivisions, no, no nothing. No. But he saw something that was going to happen, and it was his vision that made that whole thing happen. Absolutely. Yeah, that, we knew Hope wouldn't be there if it wasn't for him. And it was the church, they were yoked parish between Sedalia and Levere's. Oh, that's right, Levere's. And so you do yeah. the one service in the morning in Sedalia, you drive up to Levere's. Two individual churches, two individual sessions, yeah, right. shared one pastor. And to get two very different churches to do the same thing, to sell their, their property, uh, yeah. to move to a place that was basically a truck stop between yeah. Denver and, and Colorado Springs. No small task. Yeah, he, he saw it. He, he saw, saw it. it. He made it happen. Absolutely. And then when you came, I thought to myself, this is the guy who's going to make new hope, new hope. Man, and oh, man. Um, it was fun in the sense of, that there had been a, because of the way, of, of the gap in between the, <laughs> the founding pastor and myself, and, and there was some real turmoil and, and problems. There was five years, um, one month shy of five years between when they had a permanent full-time pastor and when I came as the next called wow. pastor. And then that it was the congregation, and they were so ready when I got there. They were so ready to get on with it, and it was just like taking the, uh, the, the top off of a champagne bottle. It was just like, boom, it just it just effervescent. So three parishes, Granada, mm-hmm. uh, Sunnyside, Sunnyside, and then New Hope. New Hope. So one of the things that I, I find fascinating for my own self is when I look back at my own career is how as a, a ministry, people in the parish probably don't think about the fact that a minister's faith changes as much as their faith changes over the years, and that we grow, we mature, we engage with different things in the culture and society and the denomination. Talk for a little bit about how your own personal faith changed from when you were in Granada through Sunnyside and oh, then yeah. New Hope in the 20 years. Of, how, did, how did your faith change during that scope of time? <laughs> so let me start with this. Let me start because I was thinking about that in, you know, over the last couple of months. How has that changed? Um, and, and you're right, it does change. And, and people assume that faith is kind of set and it's faith is the faith in terms of the the right doctrines and beliefs and all those kinds of things and and you've got that and um but and there are some things that didn't change and and a couple things that i was thinking these things have never changed and i remember the first time that i came across the uh, the quote from augustine about our hearts are restless lord until they find their rest in thee our hearts are restless until they what till they find their rest in thee Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Thee. Yeah, and until we find our rest in God, our hearts are restless. Uh And and it was like, light went on. It's like, yeah, there's this hungering, yearning heart, and it's looking for a home. It's looking for a grounding. It's looking for something. Um, Not too far off was, um, you know, growing up in the Presbyterian Church in, in the Shorter Catechism, and the very first question is, 
what is the purpose of life and the chief end of humankind? And it was to glorify God and enjoy God forever. Enjoy God forever. Boy, I remember that one. And too. the first time that that, I, I know I've heard it, but there was that one day when I heard it, and it was like the windows flew open, the lights came on. It was like, that's it. That's why I'm here. That's that's that, that's the answer. My whole being is here to, to glorify, to reflect, and to enjoy that's a big word in Presbyterian church. It doesn't often get emphasized. I was going to say, to enjoy boring God. Presbyterians want to enjoy yeah. God. <laughs> Glorify, okay, but don't, you know, don't get too far. Ahead. Oh, that, that gosh, don't get part. out of control enjoying God as Presbyterians. <laughs> yeah, and, and that was terribly important. Um, all those times in listening to the Confession of 67, 1967, and there is something in the preamble in that where life is... Life is a gift to be received with gratitude. It is a task to be pursued with courage. And that has always rung true. And that just resonates. It's uh -huh. like, oh, man, that's, uh -huh. you know, that gets. Uh, and what is, let me just jump in real quick. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned, this is the second time you mentioned the Confession of 1967. Yeah. I have a lot of people listening who have no idea what the Book of Confession is and what is the Confession of 1967. Yeah. So that sounds like it was a significant part of your own faith development, your early faith development. What is the Confession of 1967? So there was this point about 100 years ago when the Presbyterian Church had a split. Uh, real schism, and it had to do with there was one thing that defined us, and it was called the Shorter uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, and it was considered the epitome. If what is the faith, it's there, and nothing could be better. And every minister had to ascribe to the Westminster oh, yeah, Confession of Faith, right, and, right. and then and then they got liberal and said you could, and then in, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you could have scruples. Uh, you could you could say, oh yeah, I affirm it, but there's a few things I you right. know nuances. But even then, it was showing that, that something that was written 200 years ago maybe isn't, you know, isn't going to work. Um, and, and so the church went and split and did all that. And then in the late 50s, they came together again and to the United Presbyterian Church, and they said, we need a different way to think about it. It isn't just one confession of faith. This was a good one, the Westminster and the longer and the shorter catechism. But maybe we could learn, and this was actually important to my faith journey, Maybe we could incorporate other uh, expressions of faith as being valid and, and pointing so that if, if there was one thing that helped me grow, it was moving from being creedal. Here's the 12 things you got to believe. A, B, C, D. You got to believe in this doctrine, this doctrine, yeah, this doctrine. Right. To being confessional, which is the word is I, I believe. And, and, and it's witnessing of what you have believed and then understanding that it didn't begin with you. But there were other people who came before us, and you listen to what, and it's part of a conversation. You're listening to what they did, and you're not imprisoned by it, but you're informed by it, and, and, and it's a conversation. So the confessions, and the confession in 1967 was to say, we need a valid expression in America. In North America, we don't have anything here. That's true for the 20th century. That's going to speak this, this timeless faith that we have, this trust in God. And how is it going to apply and be relevant to the 20th century and the particular challenges of the 20th century? And out of that came the Confession of 1967. Huh. Uh, and, uh, and, and so this was this supposed to be this thing that, that was of the moment. 
it was relevant, but then because it's of the moment, you know, in 2067, <laughs> it's it's going to need updates. And we've already had at least right. two updates yeah. uh, just right. in our book of confessions because, again, it's not a matter of here's the things you have to believe in the same way that everybody has believed. But you stand and we stand in this incredible witness of this is this is what I've experienced about God. This is where my heart has found rest and this is what has ignited me and this is where I have seen and experienced the grace of God and this is how it applies and so whether it's the Barman Confession in Germany whether it's the um, well the Apostles Creed the Nicene Creed the Scots Confession um, some of those kind of um, uh, the, the Helvetic Confession um, all of these we, we say this, they're like they're like signposts. They're, people have trod this way. They have come and they've said, pay attention. When we've had these challenges, this is how we made sense of things. And we say that was valid. It doesn't mean I have to agree to everything that's in there. But we affirm that these are really good, right. good guideposts. And these right. are things I will, be, I will be informed by these because we believe this is a good and faithful exposition of what Scripture teaches us to believe and do. Um, and so... So that one was one that I grew up in. It was it was dealing with some of the real issues of the '60s right. uh, that were in America that are still here, and uh, and so that one had resonance for me. When I've gotten to teach it, um, people would go, "Oh my gosh, how come everybody doesn't know this stuff?" This right. is the, yeah. and so I, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we don't spend time in it because we think, "Oh, that's old stuff," or "That's really heavy stuff," and that's not me. But but boy, oh boy. It's still us, and it still speaks, and you don't have to adopt it word for word, but you ought to listen to it. Yeah, what you're not, what you're not seeing right now, is that Russ is waving his hands. Yeah, He's jumping all around <laughs> for the book of confessions that usually puts me sound to sleep. Russ is over here doing a dance on his chair and waving his arms around. He's made the book of confessions come alive in the past few minutes in ways that I had never even thought. All oh, right. it's so cool. It's How really does your faith cool. change? Let's go back. So, How does your oh, yeah, faith so change? So faith changed from the idea of being creedal. That here's what I just, you know, I was in seminary. What do I need to believe? What's on the test? I mean, I wanted to know what is Reformed theology? What am I having to answer? And, uh, and all, so I wanted to get all the answers right, you know. And, and that's how I define faith, to moving from that and the idea of certainty uh -huh. to trust uh -huh. and certainty about the answers and to I can trust the questions because it's not my answers that are definitive. It's, it's, it's the God that I, in whom I trust and learning in that. So that was huge for me, learning that, that part of it. It had to do with um, not so much the categories of getting, again, all the questions right, all the answers, but learning how to ask the right questions. Uh -huh. It was learning to move from um, things that it has to be this or that to really embracing paradox as being the closest thing to truth. Oh. That was huge. That's good. Paradox, um, closest oh, thing to truth. Yeah, it's the both and yeah, both part and. of it yeah. that, that we're closest to the truth. Um, and in, in all of that, then, and then I was listening to this, um, the separate, the biggest thing, I guess, and this has been in the last 10 to 15 years. It's been, it, it's been the, the reuniting between the sacred and the secular, that we have this artificial division. This is sacred. This is the stuff of God. This is the stuff of heaven. This is secular, lower. This is, um, this is 
this is real life in some ways, and then there's the spiritual life, and 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 the God who's up there, that's sacred. Um, and there's music that's sacred, and then there's secular, which is not. And there's this artificial division that I think has done such incredible disservice. I think it's part of the human growth, so I won't disparage it too much. But when we stay there, it becomes the source of oppression. It becomes the source of genocide. It becomes the source of racism. It becomes the source of hostilities, uh, war. All of those things come out of, because if, if there is something that's sacred, and the people who are closer to God are, are the more valuable, because that's more valuable, and then there are people who are not, then we, we have created the other, and we've created that split, that rift within our own soul. Um, th th that has been probably the biggest change in the last 15 to 20 years of realizing and coming to grips with, actually, it's all one. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's an artificial division, and it's a harmful one. And if there's anything that we, it seems to me, can speak to authentically into this world and, and to provide the hope, it's that. Mm -hmm. That this is, this is our hope, and this mm -hmm. is the hope of humanity. Right. Um, and boy, does the world need that. Um, and so that has been that, and it has been one of the, the biggest corners to turn. And then it's just a matter of, of continuing to grow. Uh, uh, when I started to, to find my, the locus of my faith within the Trinity itself, which sounds fairly esoteric at one stage. I mean, we all learned <laughs> the entire mystery of God is found in a Venn diagram as the overlap <laughs> of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, but that it's actually this dynamic movement, and it's within this movement that we find that's, that's God, and, this, and that it's moving, and because it's moving, it's, it, it, it's the source of evolution. It's the source of creativity and generativity and partnership, and at the core of it all is love. That, that, that to me, is pretty exciting stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. so those are some of the biggest changes. The hardest things have been, because I believe in long-term pastors, pastoring, that you know, I was there for 26 years. You've done the same, and I'd love to hear right. how you did this. You try to grow. You have to grow. You have to grow. Or you die yeah. there, and you just become a shell. But growth is change. Change is dangerous. Change is not always welcome because sometimes people think of ministers as they're not supposed to change. Right. They're supposed to be the source of constancy, and it's threatening. Um, and so, and it is. I mean, you're trying to, in a sense, change out the engine of a car while you're driving it. Right. Right, that's a great analogy because that's you know, exactly what it is. A lot of pastors will do, and this is comfortable. There's down upsides and downsides to it. It's like, okay, I've taken this as far as it can go. Now I'm going to go to a different church, and now I can make a lot of right. changes and upgrades right. <laughs> in between the place. Right. Okay, now I get to do this. For this right. phase, I do this. But when, when it's still you doing that, that's a, that's a tough thing. And I, I'm curious how how you pull that off. Well, that's another podcast for another time. <laughs> Maybe when I retire, you can interview me All for right. a podcast. Okay, there so is. you've changed one place. You've gone through evolution. Things have changed. A few things that emerged for you, from my view, is your role of a leader. Yeah. That you've done a lot of study with leadership. You've done a lot of talking about leadership. Talk to me a little bit about what does it mean to be a leader, just in the general sense, and what does it mean to be a Christian leader or a leader of a church? Yeah. What does it mean to be a theological leader? Talk to me about 
your understanding of leadership? So <clears throat> leadership um, is a gift, we're told. It's one of the manifestations of what God does. It's a gift like generosity and teaching and preaching. It's, it's a gift. And you got to take it seriously. Um, it's the one, I think, in Romans 12 where it says, if you, know, if you teach, teach. If you, pre you know, if you give generously. If you, if you lead with all diligence, which makes it sound like this is one among all of the others that really requires development. It requires in intentionality. Um, there are people who just naturally seem to lead. They get up and they move and everybody follows them. They're the mm -hmm. charismatic people. And you find that in all aspects, including church. But there is something else about with, within the church, within, within that, it's that it's this, this, this gift that, that to help people get from where they, where they are to where they need to be, and it wouldn't happen without them. It is to go first. It is, <laughs> you know you are a leader is when you are, when you you head out and you look and people are following, right? If they're not following, you're not a you're, leader. You're just going for a walk, right? right? Nothing right. wrong with a walk, but that's different from from leading. Um, so you take that gift seriously, even. And here's where it is in the church: you don't take yourself too seriously. It's when the self gets in the way, whether right. in my aggrandizement or my fear, my anxiety. When that starts to get in the way, then bad things happen. Um, and so it's taking that seriously, it's, it, but without taking yourself seriously, but it is also a matter of understanding that it's about influence, and it's not about a position or a title. <laughs> You've seen it too, I'm sure somebody goes, I'm the minister, this is what should happen, they should listen right. because I'm a minister. And when you hear right. that, you go, oh, yes. Friend, you, no. you you're in for a world of hurt. Right. You know, just because it says minister on, on your mean desk nothing. means nothing. It has nothing to do with position. It has nothing to do with role. It's about influence. And um, and therefore, uh, I guess what but we per particularly take seriously because because in the context of what it means in a church and faith is that leadership is still one aspect, one expression of service. It's 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 just a form of service, and it is it is offered to the larger goal, the, the, the kingdom, the realm of God. It is, it is offered to that. It's one piece of it. It's an important piece of it, but it's not all of it, and it's about service. And if, it, if we ever lose, whether elders, deacons, ministers, particularly ministers who, you know, we get to be full of ourselves, um, and, and we start to believe people, when they tell us how important we are and all those things, and you, and you start to believe that too much, and then you start to forget that it's about service, that, that, that this gift is offered in order to serve the whole body. Boy, tough stuff happens. So I think that's the difference between, I think all, all leadership at its best is, is service-oriented. Uh, servant leadership was not written in, in the church, but boy, if you don't listen to that, uh, whether you're in finance, if you're in politics, if no matter where you are in civic, if you're not offering this as an understanding that your role is to, as leader is one aspect of serving the people, you have um, you have not served with diligence. You, yeah, you know, and that is so lacking in our political sphere. It's also lacking in our religious sphere. I of mean, it is. I'm trying to look for real leaders yeah. in, in our religious sphere and. I think they're far and few between. I'm, you know, I see a few periodically show up. Like, I'm really excited about Dee Cooper, our new yeah. uh, Presbytery executive or whatever we call her. I think she's a real leader. 
I just interviewed uh, Jessica Rooks, the district superintendent for the Rocky for the uh, Mountain Sky Conference. She's a real leader in the United Methodist Church. So I really think there's some people on the horizon. What would you say to a minister, a young minister who's trying to figure out, or even an old minister, I mean, who's trying to figure out what it means to be, how do I lead my congregation? What is? So we talked about service. What are some really clear things that they should be doing to improve their leadership? <clears throat> Great question. I guess the first thing is to take it seriously. Yeah. This is real, um, and uh, and then take the do the do do the work of, of leadership of learning how uh, find the people who were their mentors, learn from them, observe, read everything you can, uh, do what you you know experience, see what you see where the leaders are outside of your field, like you'd mentioned the one school superintendent. Find those people because sometimes it's just that far off of where you are that you can learn something from it because there's, there's, there's principles. And so do everything. It Be a lifelong learner of this um, and, and take that with some real humility that, that there, there's stuff to be learned here. And, um, and the seriousness of it is you can do a lot of damage as a leader if you're not right. careful. Um, a very wise person, when I asked them what they would tell new ministers, um, had something to tell me, and his name was Steve Poos Benson, and I don't know if you remember this one, <laughs> no. but this one stayed with me, because he said, first thing I would tell people is, as they're becoming ministers, is you are responsible for your own shadow. Right. And I thought, whoa, that's got wisdom. So you're you're not only leading, learning about leadership, but you'd better learn about yourself. You'd better Did learn I say about that? yeah. You oh were, my gosh. that was brilliant. I shared it with a lot of people, and they go, <laughs> that guy knew what he was talking about, and um, and you did, you do, and um, you know. So that's that's the other thing is learning about yourself and have people who can tell you about yourself and you know. Be, yeah, you know, watch if, your blind spots. If a preacher isn't aware of their own shadow, they are. I really feel that they're dangerous. No, they are dangerous because they project that darkness onto everybody and anybody around them. I, I think when you see the downfall of ministers all over the place, whether it's affairs or finances or deceit or whatever, it's because they they're projecting their shadow onto the people around them. No, I really. It's agree an accident with that. waiting to happen. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So I mean, those are some things I you know I would I would say. Um, and then, you know, you don't have to make all the mistakes yourself. You can learn from others. So yeah. um, I think one of the things about, you know, leaders who are charismatic and, you know, come from from that kind of a part uh, that, you know, most of us have. If you're in front of people, you've got some of it. But if you have if that's all you're running on, you're not really paying attention. And so, and you think it's it's I've got to I've got to make this all up myself. And I, I am the locus of my own authority, right. you know, and it's like, oh, don't do that. So I think those when, those type of pastors are dangerous as well. They really are. Yeah, I, I have a I have a nephew who's a minister, uh, in in the non denominational realm, and formed a whole ministry for helping ministers who aren't in denominational accountability systems. Wow. It's for helping them finding strength, support, encouragement, and more than once has said, you know, this isn't you know denominations do this differently because there is accountability, there is right. there is connection and and support and organizational kinds of things. So find that support if you're outside of a of a 
external structure, then you then you got to find your internal. But even then, I mean, in a denomination, you got to find the, the people who you can walk alongside of and be honest with, be brothers and sisters to each other, and uh, and share. I had a friend who, for the pretty much the entire arc of my ministry, um, we worked at the same church in Granada Hills, and then he went off, and then we stayed, and he was that touch point for me, and I was that for him. We were the accountability partners and, right. and creators together. You need someone who can say, hey, are you hearing what you're saying? Or the time when he was able to reflect back to me, you know, about 10 years ago, you we came and you said this, and how do you line up with what you're doing now with that? And it's like, oh, someone, right. someone who can witness and be there and support, walk alongside of, because I think the downside of ministry is that we're a bunch of damn lone wolves. Right. And we think we have to do this by right. ourselves, and we act that way. And, and, and then even as we talk about community and all those things, that's what I love about working on a multiple staff. Yeah. Having clergy around you, like my uh, associate right now, Jill Vanderwall. She's a perfect touch point for me as far as when am I, when am I blowing smoke, when am I blowing BS instead of kind of speaking to my own truth and, yeah. and working together as a team. I really enjoy collegial relationships. All right, let's move on. I, wanna, I want you to talk about something that we both have wrestled with. And that is, over the span of our careers, the whole movement of LGBTQI+. Yep. That we were both in the throes of that fight um, and have watched our denomination, the PCUSA, come to, uh, I think, an amazing place that I never thought I would see happen in, the, in my career. Talk to me a little bit about your reflection upon the denomination as it wrestled with uh, LGBTQI+. Um, inclusion, to the place of ordination, to the place of uh, blessing, performing and blessing marriages, baptizing children of, of couples. You and I both paid a significant price in our churches as we helped our congregations through this whole conversation. Talk to me a little bit about your experience with that and kind of how you through a leader, guided your congregations. Yeah. You're right. Uh, that has been the issue. Uh, that, has, that has been the defining issue of my entire adult faith journey. Yeah, I'd I agree. I think I graduated in 1973 from high school. I think that was the, uh, the General Assembly that came out with its first statement uh, about um, homosexuality and, and um, um, wanting to normalize and to change the way they did that. And I remember that what a furor that caused mm -hmm. um, and has continued to cause. So I guess the first thing I want to say is I'm, I am proud to be and grateful to be part of a de denomination that will wrestle with it because nobody comes by it naturally. Right. I don't know anybody my age or older. How old are you, real quick, just for people? <laughs> 67. 67. You're only five years older than I am, so you know, don't. You're a kid. Um, I don't know anybody. Actually, Four years older than I am. Three years old. Oh my gosh, I turned 64 this year. Only three years <laughs> well, older then, than then I am. You are an old oh, wait, guy. I detract. I, stay on topic. <laughs> Steve, stay so, on topic. So you will this catch is important. This, that very few of us grew up with the understanding uh, of sexuality that we have now. Right. Um, and it did not change for us. It was part of the water that we drank, the air that we breathed, in terms of what was normal, not normal, acceptable, unacceptable. It wasn't until none of us ever had a chance to change until we 
bumped into or recognized somebody in our family or a close friend who was gay, who was lesbian, and that that had the possibility of opening up was like, well, wait a minute, they aren't the degenerates that that we have assigned this label, and they they were able to bring some dissonance, uh, some cracks in, in in what we thought we understood. So yeah, it has changed, and I will be the first person to say, yeah, we paid a price for that, a and I still I am still humbled by how long it took me to come around, huh. um, and um, and and it was those people in my life who who were gay, who were lesbian who were trans, who were patient with me. Right. Um, and allowed me to go my journey to finally get there. I, I really do feel like quoting the great theologian of our time, Cher, who said, you know, <laughs> you know I'm late to this party. Um, and, uh, and I feel like I am late to this party. Um, and I, I wish I would have been smarter sooner. I wish I could have found a way faster. Um, but it has given me the humility to work with others who aren't there yet. Uh -huh. And I want to be upset with them, and I am, um, and I am protective of people and uh, uh, all their different expressions of sexuality. I'm protective of that, and I am also mindful I didn't get there without a lot of grace. And uh -huh. so part of it as a pastor has been to create those places where grace could occur. Uh -huh. And I think in, in my congregation at New Hope when I came there they asked me about that question and I, my answer was I, I was half in half out in the sense I was like I support my denomination on this that there's no one sin that's greater than the other but it was still a sin in my mind and uh, but we need to to, to to be gracious and all that and I said but I'm also aware that I believe we're on the wrong side of history on this one yeah that, that this is going to be something's going to turn the corner and we're going to see it differently, but I'm not there yet, and I can't just jump ahead. And so, in this in this presbytery, people were very gracious and um, and and patient with me. The Denver Presbytery. The Denver Presbytery, um, very very patient and gracious with me. And little by little, it got to the point where it's like, okay, I get it. I got the corner has turned. I understand. Um, I I, have, uh, I can see my way through on this and understand that. Yeah, that I, <laughs> I repent. I was wrong about this, and I really regret the ways that um, I was not able to respond with more grace and openness and and care uh, for the people in my life. But then I'm going to create a place where at least people can talk about it. I grew up in the '60s. Confession of '67. One of the ones had to do with race and racism. Uh, I know it's hard to believe that people used to think about that. Yeah. Um, and and it was in that was the big issue in my church in that day and people left they it was because they couldn't talk about it and if you even talked about it people just split off and they were just freaked out and um, and I remember growing up thinking you know if if church isn't a place where you can talk about important things then we have made church completely irrelevant right. or all you can talk about is irrelevant things that are safe. Right. And so my position was, by God, at least we're going to talk about this, and we got to right. create a place where we can talk. And so our church, and to my session's credit, they took over a year to really wrestle with this issue and to read and to think. We went off on a retreat. How are we going to do this? How are we going to help our congregation? And our session was not of one mind, but they understood that how we talk about this is at least as important as whatever how we ever come out of this.
A session, let me just really quick inter interject. A session is a governing yeah, body. It's our governing We're body. We're using some PCUSA terms. I want to make sure non-PCUSA people can um, get a hold of. It's session our board. Is, is the board. Yeah. The, the CEO, pastor functions like a CEO, works with the board. Okay, go. Yeah. So, and we did, and we talked, and just in talking about it, we started to lose people because it was like, how dare you even talk about this? Um, I expected that if we chose to, and the issue was, will you allow your facilities to be used in order to allow weddings for mm -hmm. same-sex weddings, same-gender, same same-sex same same weddings? Um, and, and I had made it known that as a minister, I could do a wedding apart from my facility, go out in the park, do it wherever, and that was available for that. But are we going to allow our facilities? And that really freaked some people out. And people said, and people left. And I remember thinking, and I projected we'd lose about 15% of our congregation if we decided to do this. Um, to my surprise, the session, and to my surprise, delight, the congregation, in the fact that we were talking about it, found ways to talk about this beyond just the issue and beyond just the emotion, just and, and, and really humanized and... We had these town hall meetings, and people were so caring. And, and it was a process that was set up by people in my own congregation who were really good with educational communication process. And out of that, then the session voted for that. And I, be, I remember being surprised that the session would, would vote for that. Mm -hmm. um, where we are located mm -hmm. it was a fairly conservative corner of Colorado. And, but they did. And we... We actually lost closer to 20% of our congregation wow. um, and some really key aspects, and it was really hard. There were some good friends who left the church, right. um, dear people, great leaders, and um, had just decided that's a line that had gone too far. To the credit of the congregation that was there, and not everybody agreed with the decision, but they said, that this is our church, and our church is bigger than any one argument right. and or one decision, and a lot of people hung in there because this is their church. And out of that, we grew. But oh my goodness, what a price you pay oh. uh, for that. And you uh, lose, we lost a lot of members when we did this, and we lost a lot of money. Oh, yeah. Lost a lot of money. Yeah. And so it was, for, for us, it was a real gut check. Oh, God. As far as, you know, who were we as a congregation? What was it all about? Was it, are we more than money are we more than this controversy is this something that we stand for no that's real big stuff that's yeah big so that's stuff. that leader part right because you're you're mindful of of the people that whom you are leading the, right this right this this flock this herd this this congregation this group of people and you're also mindful that you can't just leave people there just because it's comfortable you can't avoid those things and that even if people get um, scandalized by it um, you still have to do it Otherwise, you're not really leading anymore. You're not serving your right. congregation. Uh, you're serving your own comfort. You're serving your own ego. Um, at least it was in my case. And that's not maybe not the case for everybody, but in my case, that was, it was a pretty much of a, of a big line. In your case, it was as well, I gather. Um, but how you did is is was at least as important as how you got there. Right. Right. And, and I guess that's probably one of the things I'm most gratified by. Um, was that process and how people did that. We had town hall meetings, and there was at least 50 in every one of them. And it was a set of questions that we had, and it, I, we had three major ones, and we had lots of small ones. But in all three of, them, of the main ones, 
we had people who came and said, listen, I'm gay. Um, we love this church. We love this congregation. It broke. It, it's really sad that we couldn't get married here. Right. But this is our congregation. This is what it has meant to us. And, and there was a lot of people who, you know, had whiplash going, wait, they are? He is? You know, um, or my daughter or my son is gay. And this is the church that baptized them. This is the church that taught them in Sunday school and vacation Bible school and youth group. It will break my heart if this church can't be the church that, where they want to get married and tells them no. Yeah. And, and it was real people, friends, uh, colleagues, and by, doing, and by being incredibly brave and being vulnerable to being rejected, and people embraced and even if they didn't agree with them, were able to. I was. It was this amazing process. Right. I, I am so grateful for the vulnerability and the openness that people had to share that stuff, knowing that they that could have gone very poorly for them. Um, they could have felt very judged, very rejected, and they didn't. To my way, to my understanding, they did not. People, people met them as people, and uh, I was very proud. I'm very gratified to be part of that. You did process. such a good job leading your congregation. You know, it's one of the things that. Um, that I'm really proud of the PCUSA, like I'm yeah. looking at other denominations who have not done this well, yeah. and how we navigated that as a denomination. I think we did a marvelous job as far as allowing freedom to those who couldn't go along with it. We blessed them on their way, yeah. and we've but it consolidated us as a denomination, and we've moved forward. I've really, I really believe and stand behind what how our denom how we got there. Not only. How, the decision we made, but I think how we got there. Yeah. I think we were way late to the table, because but we got there. Like I we never thought there. I'd ever see it during my career. Yeah, yeah. We could run down the poly rabbit hole, which we won't do for this one. But I think it's because of the way we're structured and how do we, how do we agree to disagree and how do we agree to talk about things in a way that's set up, that it continually aerates and doesn't right. let things get settled. And if something, they're really, one of the values at New Hope we have is we, we really believe in holy discontent. That that's that not all discontent is holy, but, but there's anything holy. Anything God wants to do is going to start and foment first as discontent. There's something that's not right here. Right. There's We can do better. And we have a way of it being able to embrace that and um, uh, take and hold on to that. And, and even in the 70s and the 80s, when people were just frustrated, and I was one of them, was like, oh my gosh, why won't these people just sit down? This is never going to work. Yeah. And, but, and yet it was a movement of the Spirit, and it wasn't a bishop, it wasn't a, a higher-up saying enough that there was this process whereby people could keep coming back and talking about it and talking about it and talking about it until we got some clarity, until numbskulls like me could kind of go, oh, what am I thinking? Of course, this is so clear now. You know, <laughs> but it wasn't. And you got to help people along that journey. Right. And it's not just a matter of condemning people and saying, oh, you're you're a numbskull. You're an idiot. Um, it's you got to help. And we have a process for doing that. So, again, without getting into all the details of how that happens, I think our denomination is set up so that there's the possibility of that happening. Good. Uh, been with women, race, all kinds of cool things. So, so you're retired. I'm retired. But when you look back to some, hopefully some pastors will listen to this. There's a few who dial in. Um, what advice would you give to pastors today who are leading congregations? What, if you could bestow some wisdom upon them, what would you say? Boy, I'm not sure yet. Ask me in a year. 
Um, I'm still learning. I'm learning how just to be quiet. Um, it feels very different. It's weird. Being retired Being feels retired, weird. Sure. You know, every week. I thought about you on Christmas Eve. Yeah. When when I was crazy going, yep. you were like, like it had to be a little bit knee-jerk. Oh, I got to get, oh, wait a second, I'm retired. <laughs> then, yeah. Um, so when we... T- when we talk, when we preach, when we teach, it's on a weekly basis. There is a cadence that's that's uh-huh. it's pretty steady. And then to step off of that, and I was wondering how I would do. Would right. I freak out at Christmas time? I didn't. Um, very different. And I don't know what will happen next year, but I was more than okay to the in this season to just be still uh-huh. and just... Enjoy this particular season and kind of renewing the roots. Most of my faith has been shaped and formed as a pastor of a congregation. Right. Um, now, if I don't have that role, who am I? And then what will faith look like? What will be meaningful to me? And to just allow that to do its work. And I'm allowing that to do its work. I'm trying to re- <laughs> refill the well. Um, and and the, what are the things that, that energize me? Um and so let it do the work of the season, I guess is what I would, I would say. That's what I'm trying to do. And, you know, ask me in a year how that's going. But right now, I'm about six months, and do the work of the season. Let me try this a different way. Yeah. What would a 67-year-old Russ Kane say to a 26-year-old Russ Kane who's just entering the ministry? Wow. Um, Probably nothing that the 26-year-old version of me would listen to. (laughs) There is this, you know, there is this thought, isn't there, that with wisdom that you you will be the the elder statesmen, women, Uh and and the youth will come and say, you know, tell us, wise person, what you've learned. And, of course, that doesn't happen. Um, If anything, I think we, what are the two guys... Uh, in the balcony for the Muppet movie, Muppets, uh, Statler and Waldorf, the two old cranky guys, you know, who who are constantly harassing the people who act down there on it. Um, I I think I think there's a part that I want to cheer for. I'm cheering for you is what I would tell the 26 uh-huh. year old me or anybody mm-hmm. else coming in the ministry. I would say you don't have to make all the mistakes yourself. All right. Um, you can learn from others. Right. Um, I would say, um, given that, and that probably the thing that, the gift, <laughs> there's a certain gift. Uh, one of my, there's a cartoonist, uh, Ashley Brilliant, who wrote Pot Shots, and one of his Pot Shot one-panel cartoons was this woman looking at her husband and going, I need something that only you can give, your absence. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that's true for every child to a parent, every student to their mentor, that at some point they need the mentor, the, the parent, the old, the old guy to get out of the way. Right. And so I will say, I'm out of the way. I'm here cheering for you, and I'm happy to help as I can. But I know that they have a journey that I can't imagine. That's great. They're going to a place that we haven't been. Right. And it feels a little bit like, to me, the image I've always liked was we're in St. Louis. It's in the 1800s. We're outfitting wagons 
for a, a to go off into the new world, what would you put on that wagon? What instructions would you give? Right. Knowing that about three quarters of the stuff you put on there isn't going to work, right. and the attitudes are going to have to change. So, how would you equip somebody for that next journey, where it's to a place that you haven't been to and you can't even imagine? And so, you try to give some things, and I guess, you know, I guess if I had to come to some of the things that I think that will carry people over the ruts and over the the tough, dry parts. Um, Keep the main thing the main thing is that state, uh-huh. you know, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Right. And I would say to the best of your ability, keep the main thing the main thing. And, you know, which begs the question, so what's the main thing? And um, I think that we as a church fall apart. We do best and we fall apart to the degree that we hold to uh, love. Uh, Albert Schweitzer, one of the 21st century saints, 20th century saints. Um, before he was a doctor, before her, while he was a world interpreter of Bach and organist and designed organs and sound engineer for cathedrals and all this, he was a minister. And he, one of the things he got in trouble with was his sermons were too short. <laughs> when was the last time <laughs> Pooh's Benson that somebody said, oh, that was too short? And, and he would come in and he would say, beloved, let us love one another. The congregation go, okay, what's next? What else? And he goes, there is nothing else. Wow. Let us love one another. That's great. And he did that enough times. That became his part of his reputation. And I would still say, listen, keep the main thing the main thing. It's still about, is this a place where people can learn and you can learn this venture about how to love? How do you love better? How do you love faster? Um, that seems to me to be one of the, the, the hallmarks of a church. Uh, if you had to put a sign, this is a place where people will learn to love better, faster uh, than if they didn't come here. And if, if they aren't, then we're not keeping the main thing the main thing. And because in the end, there's nothing else. And I think that's probably what I would uh, I would try to t- explain to somebody, even as I've tried to live that. And I could say, if, <laughs> if you want to see the scars where that doesn't work, I'll, I'll be happy to show you that too. But... Um, uh, that that's what I would try to impart because I think that's still the in season and out of season. That's what it still comes down to. Are we helping people to lo- learn how to love, love God, love them within themselves, for themselves, love their neighbor, love their enemy? That's you know, if, if Jesus, <laughs> if Jesus was on track, he was on it. If Paul said that's the only thing that still survives, so that's still all there is. Well, Russ, this has been great to have you on this podcast. You are a mentor, but more importantly, you are my good friend. I look forward to our future together as friends beyond the church. And I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's been lovely. Thanks. Well, everybody, this is the Cowboy Jesus Podcast. I'm Steve Poos Benson here with Russ Kane. You can read my blog, also called Cowboy Jesus. I do uh, midweek shout-out videos. You can find those on Columbine United Church's uh, YouTube channel as well as my own YouTube channel. Many different ways to stay in touch. Thank you for joining us today. Take care.